Hello? Who's there? Aoi, <laughs> Naina. Who's your mom? Egua, who's your dad? Oh. <laughs> Welcome to Two Crees in a Pod. I biggest Nitsigasun, Ginekoma My name is Amber Dion and I'm from the Kihiwan Cree Nation right here in Treaty 6 territory. I'm a mother, I'm a social worker, and I'm also an assistant professor with McEwen University School of Social Work, and I am joined by my lovely co-host. Hey, hey! <laughs> My English name is Terry Sengens. I'm from Sally Cree Nation, and I am the Director of Indigenous Initiatives in Keo Weston at McEwen University. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to the conversations. <laughs> Let's start that way. Uh, welcome to uh, episode two, uh, season two of Two Crees in a Pod. Uh, Terry and I are extremely enthralled to have our friend join us today, uh, Mr. Grant Bruno. Uh, Grant uh, took or accepted our invitation to be uh, someone on our podcast. And uh, one of the many reasons why we wanted to invite Grant uh, to be on our podcast was because we admire his work uh, and that we also admire who he is as a Nehio uh, man. And, uh, and so I've known Grant. For many years, uh, Grant has come into my classes uh, and did some guest lectures in relation to uh, fatherhood. And so we're gonna have conversations about that around fatherhood. Uh, I think we're also gonna talk a little bit about men's mental health. And, uh, and yeah, so Terry and I are just really excited to have you here. We wanna open it up to you to see if there's anything additional that you wanna add. Of course, you can see Grant's bio on our Facebook and Instagram, but is there anything additional that you'd like to add? Yeah, for sure. So for myself, I'd like to introduce myself through my parents, you know, often on the reserve, it's not who you are, it's whose you are. Mm -hmm. So my mom's Deborah Cutknife. She's from Enoch Cree Nation, uh, where she grew up. She's a residential school survivor slash foster care um, individual who went through all, all those experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad's Daryl Bruno, who's from Samson Cree Nation. And uh, my family out there is actually the Lightnings. So I'm related to the Lightnings and Cutknives in Musquatchese. Um, so I've got roots in quite a few different communities and quite a few different places. Um, I'm currently uh, a father and a father-to-be. I'm going to have a little daughter next month, which is absolutely exciting. Um, but of course, I have my three boys. I got twin 10-year-olds uh, and my little guy who's five and a half. They have taught me more than anything else. Um, I often tell myself and I reflect on this quite a bit um, I've been able to heal by becoming a father and really embracing that role even though I was so naive and young I was uh I was 21 when I found out I was gonna have twins mm -hmm. and that is you know can be very scary and it was and it continues to be scary mm -hmm. but now it's also very exciting and so I find that myself I can be the father that I want to be now mm -hmm. um, and I can do this through several ways first of all um, my father was a part of my life. Uh, my parents split up when I was young, but he, you know, he's a weekend father and I'd go visit him. Um, he did some incredible things in his life. He was an RCMP for 26 years. Mm -hmm. And when I hear his story and how he was raised, for him not to pass a lot of his traumas on to me is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. And he broke a lot of cycles. Um, I remember hearing a story, he told me a story once when he was 16. Um, he was essentially homeless and he would, uh, 
he would hitchhike to high school to try and finish. He never got a chance, to, he never got the opportunity to finish, but he ended up becoming RCMP and then going out to Saskatchewan mm-hmm. doing all that training. And he took his role as a father very seriously because he, mm-hmm. and I've heard this as well, is that when he found out he was going to have my older sister is when he started to get his life together. And mm-hmm. so I'm on the, kind of on the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's my mom, of course, who's one of the most, most incredible people I've met. Mm-hmm. Um, and such a compassionate individual. She not only raised us, but she took on three foster children as well mm-hmm. because she knew how the system works, right? And so she wanted to give them a better quality of life because mm-hmm. she... Um, she went to residential school and then when she went to a foster care home, she was abused as well. So it was a nonstop thing. And she didn't pass those traumas on to me as well. So they broke so many cycles for me, for me to be able to continue what I do. And now I'm able to pursue a PhD in medical sciences, uh, yes. pediatrics, children's health. And that's so important, right? And um, I should add that two of my sons, Marshall, who's the oldest, um, he's on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, he's such a unique and amazing individual. Um, I've seen him take on, he's, he's such a computer wits, right? And he's teaching me things about computer that I've never <laughs> known. And I'm just like, wow, <laughs> I feel like such an old person now. <laughs> um, and, Your then, kids age you too, and then the other twin who's not on a spectrum, Oliver, he's such a compassionate, thoughtful human being. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so grateful for both of them and what they brought to my life. And then there's Anders. So Anders would be considered nonverbal. Mm-hmm. But when he goes into a room, he just lights up and he has very like smiley eyes and mm-hmm. he has this energy that I'm just like, wow, I wish I could see the world through your eyes because mm-hmm. he doesn't see things as like very complicated. It's just like what it is is what it is. Yeah. And when he laughs, he's, it's a genuine laugh. Yeah. It's a genuine <laughs> smile. He's not faking it. So <laughs> they've taught me a lot about what it means to be a father. So nice. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, was, I was writing as you were talking and I think one of the things that, there was two things um, that I really took from that and it was that you talked about how you started to heal when you became a father. That was part of your healing and I relate to that as a mom and I think that when I first had my daughter, Ella, it was, it, that is when I really started diving deep into um, some of the work around my father being a residential school survivor. So really doing a lot of my own research and then really unpacking that stuff because it was triggering for me, I think, as mm-hmm. a new mom and as having a child and understanding what my father or my father's parents went through uh, during that time. And so that was definitely, that was the start of my own um my own journey too as well and I think the other thing too is that you talk about your father and how he um he broke a lot of those cycles in 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 growing up and raising his family um and being a part of your life and I think that you know there's this um I was just speaking yesterday and doing this uh assignment for class and I was talking about vicarious resilience yeah and how we you know, and I spoke about my own father again, like, and I think about, you know, what he's overcome and what he's done in his life and how he coped with addictions when I was younger, but where we are at now and how kind he is and how gentle he is and how loving and nurturing mm-hmm. he is to everybody around him and the energy that he creates. And so, um, thank you for sharing that. Cause I definitely, um, sparked something for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you dive into a little bit around men's mental health for mm-hmm. us. Yeah, for sure. Dive um, in, Grant. Yeah. So 
I was born with a lot of traumas through my parents still, of course. You know, you do inherit some behaviors as well as some thought patterns that I had no control over. I've been doing some deep, deep research into the role of trauma in my own life. Um, so as a child, you know, I was, um, I do have some childhood traumas as well as some adult traumas that I've been trying to really fix on my own because not only, no, I wouldn't say on my own. I've been, I have a team around me right now. I've been able to bring people to my life that I can trust, that I can support, that support me, that I, that I can, you know, be open with because Mm -hmm. in this moment, I'm really done pretending everything's okay. Hmm. It's not. Everything's not okay with me. Everything's not okay with a lot of the men within my circle, in our communities and abroad. Um, I think one of the worst things about our society is that phrase, you got to man up. Because mm. automatically you got to shut down. And shutting down is one of the worst things that I've done. And I've done it over and over again. And I, I was in that continued cycle, that pattern that just didn't allow me to open up and uh, sh- just show my true authentic self. But lately I've been... Uh, doing more and more research and just trying to figure out, okay, how do I handle myself when these old memories come up? Mm. You know, um, mm. I've been doing online therapy for two years. Mm. And for a long time, I couldn't even talk about that with anyone because of the stigma. Mm-hmm. But now I'm just, I'm ready to take my, take charge of my own life and really allow myself to feel these feelings, you know? Um, and it's never easy. And there have been some very dark moments for me. Mm-hmm. But in the back of my mind, I just knew through my children, I just could never give up. I couldn't just succumb to my traumas and everything that's happened to me. And very recently, and and I find that a lot of experiences with the mental health system as well as the healthcare system, um, I would say 90% of them for me have been negative. Hmm. So I tried accessing supports when I first started university. um, And... That entire experience made things like a lot worse. Yeah. And so what happened was I went to go talk to this therapist and he was, um, he was this, this blonde guy who I, I sit down I'm, and the first question I ask him is like, what do you know about residential schools? And he didn't have an answer. Hmm. And so I was like, I, I can't connect with you. Yeah. Like we're from two different worlds. There's absolutely no way I can open up to you. And it, that put me into an even darker place. Hmm. And back then there was a lot of suicidal ideation. Okay. And so I was able to reach out to some members within my own community out in Muspachis. And that's where I got my support. Mm-hmm. And that's, I had to go back to the community to go immerse myself. And those people were understanding, they, they listened, they, they gave me advice when I needed it. But mm-hmm. if I wasn't wanting advice, they weren't pushing it on me. And so very recently, almost the exact same thing happened. So I kind of in this pattern of like doing great and then the cycle of dysfunction yeah. and yada, yada, yada. Um, and this one was, really scared because I have some incredible opportunities in front of me. So I knew I needed to get a handle on things right away. And so I went to uh, a psychiatrist, you know, and they're like supposed to be the top people who can, you know, prescribe medication if you want. So I get, I go to their office and they're 20 minutes late and I'm already expecting to be disappointed. So, (laughs) (laughs) so I understand, like I've already told myself, whatever happens, I'm not letting this bring me down. And so I, I sit down and they bring a student in with them and the student's the one interacting with me. And so, and we have our mask on and they're far away. And it's like this whole experience. I'm just like, they're, and they're rushing. They're just like trying to like get as much information they can out of me. Yeah. And I'm like, how are we like, there should be some sort of relationship building that has to happen before that. The, uh, the appointment is over within 20 minutes. Hmm. And so I left there, my wife picked me up and I was, I was, I was like visibly upset. 
And I remember saying and looking at her and I was emotional. I was like, I'm not going to let this bring me down. And I haven't. Mm-hmm. I learned from it. Um, it's interesting the way the world works, though, because I was listening to another podcast on, you know, recovery and things like that. And it kind of put me in this other position of wanting to uh, try a different approach. So right now for myself, I'm not only doing talk therapy, but I'm also really focusing on my brain health. Yes. You know, like I, have, I have chemical imbalances, you know, that were inherited as a child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm doing like supplementation. I'm meditating. I'm just trying to stay present as much as I can. And so I feel great right now. I feel like, you know, I'm getting goosebumps as we speak, just talking about this. So it's been an incredible, it's, it's very, it's happened very recently, mm-hmm. but I feel, I feel great. And I guess for other men, um, and I, and I talked a little about this before we started this interview, but I'm starting to attract more people who are wanting to fix themselves or or heal in any way. Mm-hmm. And as much as I want to help them, um, I can't do it for them. Um, I don't mind if they reach out and I give them some sort of guidance. Mm-hmm. I often just say, if you need to talk to somebody, talk to a professional mm-hmm. because they're the ones that are going to be neutral. They're not going to have any biases. Uh, they're going to tell you things that you may not want to hear right away, but they're going to keep. And if you do it right, it's, it can be a powerful experience. If you find the right people, of course, mm-hmm. and the first one might not work out. So keep trying. You know, I'm on attempt, I don't know, 20. (laughs) So I've never quit and I never will. And so, um, but these are the lessons that I'm going to try and teach my sons. Right. uh, As well as my daughter, because we need as much support as we can. They're going to need as much support because they've inherited traumas through me, through my parents, through grandparents. And so I'm glad I'm able to try and at least attempt to break these cycles. And I'll Mm -hmm. continue to attempt. And I know their lives are going to be a little bit smoother than mine, but they're going to struggle too. So, right. While you were talking, I kept thinking about, so one of the things that I've been recently paying a lot of attention to is A, the institutionalization of help and how, or institutionalization and how we typically will institutionalize help. Like you have to go here to get help or you have to go there to get help and how typically it is around, you know, seeing a therapist or a social worker or a psychiatrist, et cetera, et cetera. And these services seem to be away is is kind of my thoughts. The other piece that you reminded me of is not just about self-care, but about community care. And how is the community nurturing nurturing you? Because oftentimes when we say self-care, it's like this, it's the responsibility is solely on us to get well. And we know, not just in tribal communities, but we also know in social work that that's not true. You cannot do it alone. We are we are built to make connections with other people. We are, our D, like our DNA screams for us to be connected to other people. And so what I really appreciate about what you said was, is that you have not given up on trying different things that you will go access, you know, uh, care in other places. But when you said you went back home and then you got what you needed at that time, totally resonates with me. Because oftentimes, and again, like I've said this before, I've been, I've done talk therapy out the yin yang, you know, and I've, I've connected with therapists. I've had great connections with therapists. Um, but I remember being in one of those darkest times of my life where I was like, I don't know if I can live anymore. And I remember going to Sundance and just being like, this is it. I ha- this is my response because it, I don't know what else to do because nothing else seems to be reaching me the way I needed to be reached 
And so I remember like going there and it wasn't even just, and again, it wasn't even just, um, it wasn't just the elders that I spoke to. It was the knowing that the spirits were going to take care of me and that I didn't even have to say it out loud and I was going to be taken care of. And so I really appreciate and I hope that other folks and, and the, both the men, uh, LGBTQ2S folks and women that are, are hearing this, this episode know that, yes, it's important to access care and help where, uh, where it's appropriate, um, but also know that going back home, but that's a responsibility for the home. We need to start looking after our people too, right? And so how do we, how do we um, have community care? You know, what does community care look like? What is, instead of self-care, what does that look like for a community to embrace you? And especially as men, um, because like you said, that whole narrative of man up, you know, is not working. That doesn't work. But even, I, I think about <clears throat> being, I was in a ceremony a couple weeks ago and um, had hit, was nearing burnout from work and just personal life and professional life and uh, being invited to go to a lodge and remembering walking in there and basically being saying, we're all going to take care of you. Yep. Mm -hmm. All of us. And I'm looking around and I don't know most of the people, but we are going to help you and we're all yeah. going to work together and, and, and do this together and we're going to help you. And I remember feeling like just this overwhelming love and nurturance in that space and again like that relates to us going back to our communities our ceremonies and i think one of the things that you talked about is that you know you have people who are connecting with you now mm -hmm. um, who are wanting to be who are who are needing help and support in different ways um, and i think that you you radiate that because mm -hmm. you bring that energy and because people feel safe with you. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily, you don't need to have a psychology degree no. or a social work degree. You just create space and you are present with them and you sit with them. And it's just, again, like we have many support people in our life. And you talked about that earlier is that, you know, Amber's my support person. Mm -hmm. She feeds me candy when I need to go. Absolutely. Here. Do you want some candy back? <laughs> <laughs> I got it off. But there's there's different people that don't necessarily they don't need the mm -hmm. the credentials or the titles of of Western education that they are literally good human beings who have good energy and loving energy and are genuinely caring. And yeah. you again, like you carry that and that's why people gravitate towards you exactly. and 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 so yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, lots of candy. <laughs> Where's the candy? Want to cry candy? <laughs> Not that. I think one of the other things is um, if there's that I would like to know a little bit more about is your research, um, your research work with Cree fathers that you did. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can go there eventually, but I'd like to talk a little bit about how research has been a part of my healing journey as well. Mm -hmm. So in my undergrad. Um, I don't even know how this even works, but the universe, I always tell people the universe is on my side. Yeah. Um, I'm, only, I'm literally the only person that can get in my own way and that happens way too much. And it's because of the trauma and I understand yeah. that. So when I was just finishing my undergrad, um, I had a professor introduce me to a colleague, a good friend of mine, his name is Dr. Richard Osler. And he's doing incredible work out of Muskogee's and um, just completely randomly, we 
went and had coffee and he's like, you know, I have this research assistant position for to come work out of Muskogee's to look at maternal health, actually. And so I didn't know what research was back then. And nobody tells you how to apply to grad school. Nobody, yeah, no. nobody explains how important research is before mm-hmm. you even apply. And so I just thought it was a summer job. And I was excited. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to have a job this summer. Great. <laughs> and so we, um, yeah, he eventually hired me and I started doing work for him and he liked it. And the other lady who got hired, research wasn't for her. She was like, no, I don't want to do this. So I took on her, her hours too. And by the end of the summer, he's like, do you want to just keep working? I was like, yeah, for sure. Um, and then I remember we were driving to Musquatchies to one of our uh, advisory committee meetings. And he's like, what's your plan for after your undergrad? And I was like, I don't know, maybe do a master's. I have no idea. And he's like, well, you know what? If you're actually really interested, I can probably find you funding. And then we can go ahead with that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? He's like, you think I have what it takes? He's like, I know you do for sure. Mm-hmm. Like he, he believed in me before I believed in myself, which is incredible too. And so through that, I started to do my master's. And then one of the studies was with the fathers. Now this study was incredible because we often don't get to tell our own stories, mm-hmm. especially in health research. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at most health research around indigenous populations, it's very deficient. Mm-hmm. It's pathologizing. It's making us much sicker than we are. And so we wanted to use a strength-based approach to tell the, the fathers and allow them to tell their own stories. And we did this in one particular way, and that was through this research method called photo voice. So the fathers came to me with pictures mm-hmm. that they were allowed to choose any pictures that they want, as long as it related to fatherhood. Yeah. And so they came and they brought their picture and we just sat down and we went through each picture and they talked about it. Mm-hmm. And what this does is it addresses power imbalances within research which is huge because as a researcher, you do have power over the people who you are researching and for them to be able to bring it in something that's important to them. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to really focus on the narrative that they want. Right. So that's, that's huge. Um, But at a personal level, I was able to connect with fathers in a way I'd never had before. You know, we talked about the struggles. We talked about the good things. We talked about wanting to be providers and protectors, which is so needed right now we need to hear these stories mm-hmm. we need to be able to connect through our stories and then allow us to really just show our true selves to each other mm-hmm. we always have these masks on right and these masks are so destructive mm-hmm. you know you have your violence mask where the person just thinks it's manly to be violent yeah the sexual mask where you know you got to conquer women right. you have there's so many different masks that we try to put on all the time and it's time to just to take that mask off and put it down and just allow ourselves just to really connect mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that hit me right here. Um, and I think it, and I think, and so I heard um, Grant talk about his research. He came to one of my advanced practices mm-hmm. classes and presented his research. And I think that one of the coolest things about it is, is that, again, that creating, inviting men to be, to access their vulnerability because oftentimes that vulnerability is something that is seen as um, weakness or is seen as um, something that is if if a man demonstrates vulnerability it oftentimes opens up all these doors of the possibility of being harmed and rightfully so our men have been victims 100% our men have experienced victimization Right. And so, you know, opening up vulnerability and allowing, you know, yourself to sit in a space where you're holding a picture of you and your child and you're talking about being a father 
um, can just like, I get goosebumps thinking about that and what that must've been like. And I've told you and, and Terry knows as well that I did some research in my uh, undergrad um, with men. No, sorry, that was my graduate uh, degree. And we, I brought men together from our community and I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, where are we like, you know, and it was all in relation to health programs. And our men sat there saying, you don't call us. You don't talk to us. Like when my baby needs a vaccination, you ask for mom. Why can't you tell me that my baby needs a vaccination? You know, or if you have maternal child health programs, why don't you have paternal child health programs? Mm -hmm. If you have breastfeeding buddies, why don't you have dads and kids or dads and tots or whatever, right? Like, and our men were so vocal. They were so vocal. And I, it was such a beautiful experience to sit with these men and, and for them to be honest about how they were being excluded, uh, intentionally excluded in our community. And it opened up my eyes and I brought that to our nurses. And I'm like, this is what they're saying. We need to address this. And they did, they did address it. Um, and, but it's only because those men came forward and said, this is what it's like being a dad on the res. And I'm like, yeah, have you ever been asked this before? And they're like, nope, no one's ever even asked us. So I think one of the responsibilities we have is to ask men and fathers or uncles or grandparents or grandfathers, like, what do you need? What are, what, what's, what's going on, right? Um, because if you've never been asked it before, you know, that, that again, right there is you're invisible, right? So thank you. Thank you for doing that work because it was really cool. <laughs> Where can people find that? Um, if you Google Scholar, myself or Richard Oster, I'm sure it would come up. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I'd add to that though is the vulnerability side. So my approach to fatherhood has always been fatherhood is sacred. Mm -hmm. It's something that needs to be approached like ceremony, right? Um, and I'm talking like healing. I talked, you know, you go to ceremony for healing. I've healed through, father, through becoming a father. Um, I've, I have a certain tradition I do with my sons, just like, you know, when you go to a ceremony, there's a certain protocol that you yeah. gotta father or follow through with. Mm -hmm. And so that approach to me is the most beneficial approach. Mm -hmm. And you take it seriously. All of a sudden you think you're becoming a father is sacred. Then you're like, okay, I gotta do something about that. And I, I gotta approach it a certain way that it's going to hurt sometimes, you know, you're going to, you're going to suffer, you're going to feel pain, but it's all going to be worth it mm -hmm. because to see my children smile and laugh and, you know, have a, a very decent life now, um, I'm like very proud of myself mm -hmm. and it took me a lot of years to even be able to say that. But the other thing I would say is that even in those darkest, darkest moments of mine, fatherhood is one of those things I could always fall back on mm -hmm. always just like ceremony, right? And so now I'm just trying to build off of that and make sure that they have that type of guidance and support that I know they're going to need. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be interesting with a daughter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> you're talking to moms and daughters here. I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity as well yeah. as the challenges. Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm being a little naive, but it's funny because... Her, her mom, her mom to be's just like, you're going to be a little suck up and like, yeah. <laughs> yep. And then, so I'm, but I'm excited and, and I'm just, 
very grateful for these kind of opportunities as well to be able to talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, these are just evidence that I'm on the right path. Yeah. So I often do that's all I take them as. Yeah, you better watch out with that little girl that's coming. <laughs> I swear. They're so they, fun. They are so fun, and they will change your life. Mm. Um, and they will challenge you, and they will teach you. Oh, yeah, and I love that you said fatherhood is sacred. Mm-hmm. That's the title of this podcast. That is. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that um, that's such a beautiful way to explain that mm-hmm. and share with with other men, with other fathers. Um, as we wrap up, um, is there any closing comments or anything that you would like to share that you feel that our listeners should? Yeah, know? so when it comes to mental health, I often go back to Tupac. I love Tupac. <laughs> <laughs> he was real. Picture me rolling, Brad. He has that. So my, one of my favorite songs of all time is Changes. Mm-hmm. And in it, he says... We have to change the way we eat, we have to change the way we live, and we have to change the way we treat each other. Mm-hmm. Now, the last two I got as a kid, but I was just thinking, like, why is he saying it? And I remember thinking this as a teenager, we have to change the way we eat. What does mm-hmm. that mean? And I used to question that back then. Now I'm getting, as I'm doing more research, I'm finding how much your nutrition affects your mental health. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, through colonization, we, we don't eat healthily. Uh, we're not teaching each other how to do that. Um, we can be very judgmental about it too when people are not. That's what I'm trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. It's not about me being better than you because I know more about nutritional value that affects your mental health. And so I find that even elders. So I, I remember in my research, I did research with some healthcare providers. I wanted to do a feast to really thank these health healthcare providers for supporting our communities. Because it's not all bad. Don't get me wrong. There's some great healthcare providers mm-hmm. that have been able to provide incredible support. And so I really want to thank them. Yeah. And I remember we were at our advisory committee and I was like, you know, we're going to try to do some healthy options. And those elders shut it down. <laughs> They're like, no, you're, you're not bringing that. You're not forcing us to eat. And unfortunately, through residential schools, they've inherited that. And I see that in my parents as well. Mm-hmm. They want sugary stuff. They want that little rush. They want unhealthy things. And so it's up to our generation to teach our children I guess what? Nutrition is so important. It's, such a, it's a building block to not only good individual mental health, but community mental health too. Yeah. And so, and we can't do it in a very judgmental. We can't say, this is what you have to eat, but we can guide you along and just make little, little changes that will affect and have good impact over the long term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'll share a quick story just because I remember <laughs> I was teaching at the University of Calgary and I ate a Big Mac for lunch that day. And I went, I know, I, I know, no, 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 don't get me wrong. That Big Mac was good. But I ate a Big Mac for lunch that day. And I went back to my office. And weeks before I had watched that documentary, uh, We Were Children. And uh, if you haven't seen the documentary, We Were Children, please check it out. It's about uh, residential school survivors. And um, so watch that, showed that video in my class uh, weeks before, you know, obviously was impacted by it. But I was sitting in my office weeks later after eating that Big Mac and I didn't want to work. Like I literally was sitting at my desk and I felt bloated and I was just like, oh, I don't want to do anything. Like, I just don't want to do anything. I don't want to work. And I remember going home that day and just feeling really lethargic, like feeling very down and whatever. And then I'm driving home and I'm like, 
oh my God, it was the Big Mac. And then I started thinking bigger. And I'm like, I remember in that film, we were children and my dad and us all having parents of residents, mm -hmm. we're, we're all survivors or second generation. I remember growing up and my dad, although it was extremely unhealthy in residential school, ate porridge and bread every morning. My dad ate porridge and bread every single morning. And my dad didn't talk a lot about his experiences at residential school, but he did talk about the food. That's the one thing my dad did talk about was about how they ate shit. Mm -hmm. They didn't eat healthy food. And at one point he tells a story about how they were all brought to the gymnasium at Blue Quills, all the kids, and they were told they were gonna get a treat. And the priests and the nuns lined up on the other side and they threw hard bannock on the floor across the floor of the Blue Quills gym and the kids all raced for it. And they had to fight over these hard pieces of bannock. And my dad remembers that. And, um, and I think about how we do this in, in, in colonized spaces, in colonized countries, we offer people crap food. And one of the reasons why I think we've done that or why that has been strategic is because the more hungry you are, the less resistant you'll be. And if we can keep you hungry, then you will do whatever we say. And so one of the things that I recognized that day when I ate that Big Mac was, no wonder I feel the way I do, is because I ate something that didn't nourish my body. It didn't give me any sustenance. I feel lethargic and now I don't wanna do anything. And so I think that we've, colonization has used food to keep us quiet, to keep us you know, submissive and to keep us um, you know, voiceless in many ways. Again, the more hungry you are, the less, the less energy you're gonna have to fight back. And that reminds me of when I was working in community. And so this is something that I think that is important for social workers to know is that um, this one time I was working in community and there was a mom who had her children taken away. And one of the things you can see in that meeting, and I was there as a support person, but you can see in the meeting how she was not present and she was crying and she was just, she wasn't there. Yeah. And I remember looking over at her and saying, when did you last eat? Hmm. And she said, yesterday. And I was like, okay. So I'm like, we're gonna take a break from this meeting and I'm gonna take her to go eat. Because how are we supposed to discuss a plan right. of all these social workers and all these people coming together with a mom who isn't in the right state of mind, who isn't present, who is emotional, who is hungry? <laughs> There's like <Fuck> basic, <laughs> basic needs, doesn't know where necessarily where she's going to sleep that night. And it's like, okay, let's, let's figure out these basic needs and then let's have a conversation exactly. about, because then we can think clearer about the plan that's going to transpire over the next day. But again, like food yeah. and, and yeah. you know, and, and that's important, I think for social workers is understanding those needs of working, um, in community or in, within our, in our cities, yeah. uh, yeah. And asking those questions and yeah. being mindful and being um, aware, I guess. Yeah. And just to build off of that, I think there needs to be a shift in approach. And so being com curiously compassionate, mm -hmm. not only to your own thoughts, patterns, but everybody else too, right? Because yeah. I think we can be very judgmental right away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're curious about it and you actually want to understand, you're going to take a different yeah. approach. Yeah. 
So that's the one advice I'd give to anybody who's working with our mm-hmm. people. So yeah, yeah, love it. Thank you so much, Grant. Uh, thank you for joining us on uh, today's episode, and we cannot wait to publish this and and get it out to to our listeners. So I hi. Thank hi, you. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Two crees in a pod. 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 means. Yeah. They pushed us to this point, frustrations of a common man Manifest the destiny, preach and pledge the promised land I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor Like what's the use of my kids, can't taste clean water A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice Fighting to be heard, so we make them hear our voice Remember ancestors, anguish lightning in our veins Hear it in a language when they are kissing for the rain I am product of people that persevere, persecution Paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting Experience our pain when our women disappear daily Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me We move in silence, cover of the night Learning from the wolves in the forest Tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptations? Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said